Hello, this is Mark Lieberman, the host of the radio show, The World According to Mark, brought to you through WPVM LP in Asheville, North Carolina. 103.7 on your dial if you're listening to us now. Also streaming globally on WPVMFM.org. So today I have um, a guest who's going to try to explain everything we need to know about prescription drug pricing. And my guest is Antonio Chacha. Antonio, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Great to be with you. Although you said we're going to get talk about drug pricing. This is supposed to be an hour long. If we're going to learn everything we need to know about drug pricing, we probably need to schedule another three weeks. Okay. Well, uh, whatever we, whatever we, <laughs> continuously, <laughs> whatever we don't cover in this hour, we will have, uh, you know, a subsequent shows and then people can write in and get a certification if they manage to sit through all of it. So, okay. So obviously I was, um, over-promising. Um, but just a, a bit of an intro and then a, of, of the topic. Um, I recently found out, uh, and, and as Antonio, I discussed, I have a background as a lawyer in uh, healthcare or health law regulation, including reimbursement, um, having worked for and with uh, hospitals and uh, physicians and clinics never really worked for a pharmaceutical company, obviously, but I, I thought I understood um, what I needed to know in terms of my own prescription drug uh, costs and involvement with getting prescription drugs. And as a <laughs> Medicare beneficiary, I have the uh, privilege, I thought, of having a in prescription drug program, as many Americans do, that I thought would cover the bulk of my drugs, understood that branded drugs would, uh, because they cost more for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into. But assuming that I could you know, understand and well afford the cost. And then uh, recently I found out that I don't know anything about prescription drug pricing because it's now really confusing and it sounds like it's corrupt, but I don't want to pass judgment. Um, but I found that in some cases you can be paying out of pocket more than you would if you bought the drug, excuse me, less than if you bought the drug through your insurance plan. And there's a lot of these so-called discount drug cards that are available. And a lot of famous people like Martin Sheen are advertising them on television. And it's, it's just more complicated. So uh, Antonio has a big job trying to explain it to us, but he's used to explaining it because he is a CEO uh, for uh, two companies, which I'll let him talk about, um, that helps to sort of understand the data and tries to explain things to businesses and others um, but he's going to give us a tutorial in this and, and I'll keep the conversation moving. So let me turn it back to you, Antonio. You, you had um, uh, early involvement in the pharmacy uh, area. Uh, you switched uh, focus and then you came back to pharmacy with using your business degree. So tell us first, you're coming to us from Ohio, outside of Columbus. 
and where these two businesses are, are headquartered. Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in a pharmacy household. My dad uh, has been a hospital pharmacist up in the Cleveland area for about 40 years. Uh, he spent some extra time on the side working at an independent pharmacy. Uh, pharmacy was good to our family. Uh, I was enamored with what he did um, and initially set out to do exactly what he did. And so um, I started working as a pharmacy technician for a small uh, grocery chain up in the uh, Cleveland area. And every, um, every, every intent to do exactly as he did. My sister did the same. Uh, she was a Walmart, she's a Walmart pharmacist today up in Northeast Ohio. And uh, I got to organic chemistry and said, this sucks, I'm out of here. So I switched to journalism and uh, political science. I uh, ended up uh, thinking that I'd be done with pharmacy forever. Uh, shortly after my time at Ohio State, I took a job with the Ohio Pharmacists Association where I was running their uh, magazine and uh, eventually moved my way into government affairs, which is where I really started to learn about the complicated world of drug pricing. So why is it so complex? It's because there's no such thing as price. Uh, there are many different ways that you can quantify the price of a drug at different stages within the drug channel. But anytime you have more than one price, there is no such thing as price. And so we learned that the hard way through my time at the Pharmacy Association, which we can get into later. But today, uh, based upon what we have discovered through our longitudinal research and investigation into how drug pricing works, uh, I launched a nonprofit called 46 Brooklyn Research, where we take publicly available drug pricing data, we analyze it and create uh, dashboards that make it more accessible to the general public. So our goal is purely drug pricing education. And um, when we launched that in 2018, we were bombarded by um, governments, plan sponsors, patients, provider groups, et cetera, that were somewhat enamored with some of the dashboards and tools we had uh, given away at 46 Brooklyn. And while I had no entrepreneurial desires at the, um, and still don't, it was very clear that there was an unmet, unmet need in the marketplace. And so I launched a consulting firm called Three Axis Advisors uh, in 2019, where uh, I, we do work for Medicaid fraud control units, state attorney generals, uh, provider groups, uh, research foundations. Um, we even do work for some uh, transparent and disruptive uh, pharmacy benefit managers. We do a little bit of everything, but all centered around diagnosing dysfunction in the drug supply chain. Interesting. Uh, I, what's particularly interesting to me and hopefully the listeners is you launch, so to speak, the nonprofit first, if I understand what you're saying. You obviously uh, were making a living out of that, paying yourself a salary, I'm assuming. That was all volunteer. I did it wow. as a side as a side, um, as I was working for the Ohio Pharmacists Association, I see. Um, we decided to spend the hours between 9 p.m. and 12 a.m. Uh, you know, with our with our laptops, uh, crunching boring Excel sheets off of CMS's website, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and that's how we did it. That again is even more amazing that you contributed and worked those kind of hours. Um, uh, as your after day job, so to speak, 
But let me back up because there's a lot of interesting things that you said that I'd like to follow up on. It. Um, years ago, maybe 30 years ago, even still 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, it didn't, it didn't seem, it didn't seem to me that prescription getting prescription drugs was that complicated from the standpoint of the consumer. <clears throat> and also it seemed that you had a lot of choices, at least seemingly, because you had a lot of different brand names of pharmacies around America. Today, it would appear there's still a lot of choices, but it's a little bit of a confusing landscape, which is to say, in the towns that I've lived in in the last, again, 20, 20 30 years, there are there's CVS, and there's Walgreens. There, there are other pharmacies, but there's CVS and there's Walgreens. And yep. sometimes they're a quarter of a mile apart or a mile apart. And sometimes, you know, I've noticed in Florida, there's a CVS and there's a Walgreens across the street. And that is very strange to me. Yeah. But, but I believe that the reason, there's probably lots of reasons for it, but the CVS and the Walgreens in this process started years ago, don't just sell drugs. Um, and I don't mean sell drugs on the street. They sell, they sell milk, they sell lunch meat. They, they sell a bunch of stuff having nothing to do with, um, with drugs. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, that looks like, potentially an oligopoly or something with a poly at the end, but they, they're, they're, they're big players, but there are other folks out there that are involved. And you just mentioned it because now you go to your grocery store and you know, there you go there to buy the milk, but while you're <laughs> there, you can get, you can get a prescription filled and you can get a COVID shot and you can get a flu shot, a shingle shot. And then you can go back and, you know, pick up the other items, uh, you know, the, the sugar frosted flakes um, in, the, in the next aisle. But, 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 it's, but all this is sort of weird. And I don't know whether how the extent to which any of that contributes to the overall issues that you concentrate on, which is what's going on in terms of drug pricing. But can you speak to that, please? Consolidation is a, is a, is a reality of the current marketplace from top to bottom in the drug channel we've seen increased consolidation in the drug maker space. We've seen increased consolidation in the drug wholesaler space, um, pharmacies included, uh, pharmacy benefit managers, uh, PBMs, the, those that essentially manage the drug benefits on behalf of insurance companies, they have consolidated as has the insurers as well. And so uh, consolidation is often sold to consumers and regulators as some saving grace that's gonna provide, you know, great economies of scale that will benefit the consumer. Uh, what we typically see is that it ends up just uh, enabling more arbitrage. It constrains, uh, you know, options of choice in quality. We don't typically see, you know, increase. In fact, you could argue it decreases, especially in the pharmacy sector. Uh, if you're a patient in the old days, if you have a, a bevy of, of choices at your fingertips, you're going to choose a pharmacy based upon whether or not they're the most convenient whether they provide you the highest level of care and whether or not their prices are competitive. 
Today, you know, our price sensitivity as consumers has been stripped of us because the drugs are basically covered by our employers or Medicaid benefit, et cetera. We don't really, we're not really price sensitive anymore. So at least that part is gone. So it was customer service and convenience. And, you know, as we've seen, as, as choices diminish, the quality in pharmacy, I think from a customer service standpoint, has been diminishing. And there's been a lot of articles in NBC News at New York Times highlighting that, you know, the pharmacy experience uh, from a customer's perspective has, has really been in a state of decline due to understaffing, you know, crappy metrics in the, in the industry, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I want to go back at some point shortly to your issue about um, lack of price, excuse me, lack of price sensitivity on the part of the consumer. Um, I've, I suspect that's not completely true in the sense, and, and things are changing because while you have insurance, if you have insurance and your insurance company is charging you a premium and you can afford a premium, and the other expenses associated with procuring drugs, such as co-payments and deductibles, is relatively small, then you don't think about it very much. But what seems to be a growing trend, and again, my own experience sort of highlights it, is just because you have insurance doesn't mean you're still not paying and feeling the pain when you go to Walgreens or CVS or some other place to procure your drugs and you think, oh, I can afford a $10 copayment or a $30 copayment, or in some cases, maybe the insurance pays for 100% of it. But when you go there and go through the drive-through and they say, um, did you know? Because this is what this is the question you get asked more often from just for who's ever manning the window. Um, did you know that your drugs are going to cost you $345 today? No. Um, well, they are. And, and that is sticker shock. And then you got to say, am I going to pay it? Is there another avenue? I can't stand in this line anymore. People are honking a horn. So I got to, I got to just make it a snap decision. So I, I, I know things are changing and, and it's probably because people like myself are experiencing that, but maybe it would be best if you talk about, as you've talked before uh, in various venues, how do prescription drugs get to the pharmacies to begin with? What is the supply chain? Can you talk about that? So there's a lot of different ways that we could go down this road, but let's let's just use a, a more simplified one for the sake of the attention span of, of, of a lay of viewers and listeners. Uh, you have a drug maker that makes a drug. Think of Pfizer, Eli Lilly, AstraZeneca, et cetera. They sell to drug wholesalers, uh, companies called McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, uh, Cardinal Health, headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, those wholesalers will distribute to pharmacies. And uh, think of CVS, Walgreens, your independent pharmacy, et cetera. And that is the, the, the chain of command as far as the actual physical inventory of the drug goes. Um, a pharmacy can choose to purchase drugs from a variety of wholesalers, just like a wholesaler can choose to buy their drugs from a variety of manufacturers. And just to be clear, um, in the case of a so-called wholesaler, in days gone by, a wholesaler would be someone or an entity that took custody, in effect, purchased the drugs at a wholesale price, and then 
dispense them down the line to individual uh, pharmacies or whatever. But that's not really what's what's going on. I mean, I'm, tell you, I'm assuming that the wholesaler, what you call the wholesaler, is more like a broker who sets it up. Is that true or not true? They're pro- they're probably a little bit of both. I, I like to think of the wholesaler as the warehouse. Um, you know, if I'm a pharmacy, it'd be very inefficient uh, if I was to buy my drugs to, uh, from all the hundreds of different manufacturers that are out there. And so the wholesaler provides some assurity to the drug makers. The wholesaler, you know, is, is representing all these different pharmacies that are purchasing drugs. And because they, they are selling to so many different pharmacies, they're able to use that scale to go back to drug makers and get their own discounts. The drug makers enjoy that trade-off because there's some assurance that a certain amount of product will always be turned by that wholesaler on an ongoing basis. And okay. so it's a, it's a very legitimate market function because on the pharmacy end, at least at that point, I don't have to go to Teva, Pfizer, and everybody else, especially in the generic sector, where there's hundreds of different of different manufacturers. It provides some stability um, and and some some sort of um, uh, it's an easier to predict flow from the wholesaler. The question then is, are wholesalers providing value relative to what they charge? And you know, not all the time. They, they engage in arbitrage too. But from a functionality perspective, that that supply chain, if you will, um, is built in, 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 I think, a good alignment. Okay, so um, let me reintroduce my guest today is Antonio Chacha, who is, um, the he runs two separate organizations which interface. One is Three Axis Advisors, which is a consulting firm that helps to explain to various uh, entities, including the government or providing consulting services to government insurance programs and others. Um, and also he is the founder of and the president of, of 46 Brooklyn Research. And if people want to look up those um, companies on the internet and find out more about it, more than what we're gonna be able to discuss today, I invite them to do so. But, <clears throat> Where I wanted to pick up again is, again, in, in, in the olden days, and still presumably for that segment of the population, which doesn't have any insurance that covers prescription drugs, there the three parties you mentioned, which is the pharmaceutical company, the wholesaler, which is the middle person, I was going to say middle man, but middle person, and then the pharmacy. But in the world in which there are insurance programs that uh, private commercial insurance programs, government sponsored insurance programs, such as Medicare and Medicaid, there is this third entity with an alphabet part of its name, PBM, which stands for pharmacy benefit manager. They were in, they came into being at some point for some specific reason and now it seems like maybe what they're doing has changed. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, um, you know, prescription drugs weren't always expected to be covered by insurance plans. And so in the old days, you know, a lot of times we talk about community pharmacies and we talk about them as retail pharmacies. And, and retail pharmacies, the, the reason that they were, were named that is because they operated like any other retail establishment. You know, you walked in, the price of the drug was in fact the price of the drug. And so pharmacies 
and the entire drug supply chain that behind it essentially had to compete on price and quality to entice a patient to buy a product. If the product was too expensive, the patient would choose not to buy it. Now, we might say as society that that's it's an unacceptable thing to happen, that a patient could not afford a medication, which is why we have things like Medicaid and Medicare and compulsory private insurance at this point. But what that used to be was a, a, a just like you would buy your gallon of milk or your, or your, or your box of eggs. Uh, over time, we as consumers sought out uh, more coverage because the medicines got more expensive. And so PBMs were brought in to facilitate the claims transaction between insurance companies and pharmacies. PBMs just very simply uh, back in the 60s and 70s were adjudicators, something essentially like a Visa or MasterCard for your drugs. Uh, as our reliance as consumers on coverage grew, so too did the role and impact of PBMs in managing or facilitating that transaction. And as PBMs found themselves in the middle of more and more transactions, rather than a customer just reaching into their wallet and paying cash, plan sponsors like government programs and employers who were paying for benefits for employees said, maybe we could have PBMs start influencing the transaction rather than just approving it. And so rightfully so, because you have drug makers who left to their own devices would charge as much as they could get away with, who sell to wholesalers who would do the same thing, who sell to pharmacies who would do the same thing. Eventually plan sponsors started to say, PBMs, we want you to start working on our behalf to not just pay the bill, but start negotiating the bill. You know, say, we don't wanna pay what the pharmacy is charging. We don't wanna pay what the pharmaceutical company would like to yield on the drug. And so as that occurred, the role of PBMs became so much more important because they were acting as a necessary friction against one end of the drug supply chain that again, left to its own devices would charge as much as they could get away with. Where PBMs started to get more complicated was when they started to develop business interests on the very end of the transaction that they were hired to control. And so PBMs started making money from drug manufacturers. Drug manufacturers would pay PBMs a lot of money, what we typically call rebates, in exchange for the PBM agreeing to cover the drug in the first place. PBM started uh, opening their own pharmacies. They have mail order pharmacies, specialty pharmacies. In the case of a company like CVS Caremark, you might know CVS as the pharmacy. Caremark is the PBM. Uh, as PBMs develop more and more business interests in the within the drug supply chain beyond just processing the claim and working to make it less expensive, so too has the size of PBMs grown. Today, the three largest PBMs and their uh, vertically integrated enterprises are now Fortune 15 companies. They are larger than the pharmacies and drug makers that they were hired to control in the first place. So. For a layperson, they might say, PBM, that sounds boring and uninteresting. It's true. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I get that. But recognize that if you care about drug pricing, <clears throat> these are the largest players operating in the drug supply chain today. Okay. So let me try again for myself, but for our listeners to try to break this down a little bit further. So it, it sounds like, you know, the, the name pharmacy benefit manager is actually a misnomer in terms of describing what those entities do. 
But what you just said um, in terms of integration, and for those uh, listeners who are not experts in antitrust law, um, you said that there in effect is both horizontal and vertical integration. So horizontal integration, again, um, is where, a, and let's not use the drug business for example, but let's just say horizontal integration is where you've got two companies that do different things and compete for the market. And therefore there's competition and competition is considered usually to be good because it then um, creates incentives for the competitors to lower their prices in order to um, sell more stuff. When you have uh, integration on the horizontal level, um, and again, going, now going back to the drug business, you have uh, integration in the sense that the market for drugs um, becomes less competitive the fewer players that you have. So if you only have two or three major players, and there's three, I've heard the, the number 80%, three major players in terms of the PBMs, also presumably um, the pharmaceutical, not the pharmaceutical companies, but um, the, the uh, interface, I guess, if that's the right word, you have less competition, but you also said vertical integration. Vertical inter integration, again, going back to the to uh, oil and gas analogy, is you've got Exxon, and then you've got ex brokers that sell the, the Exxon gas to the gasoline station. That's that's to the extent that Exxon owns not only the the company that drills for the oil, but also the pipelines and also the individual gas stations, you've got vertical integration. And both of those things in the, in the, tend to be um, considered to be not good ultimately for the consumer because it removes the levels of competition at every, at every place in that supply system. So anyway, let me let you take it back to the drug situation and explain uh, whether I've stated that accurately. I think you're. I think you're right. Uh, you know, I it, it, when it comes to horizontal integration, you have uh, you have drug companies which are still very. It, it, the drug industry, from a manufacturing perspective, is actually relatively speaking quite diverse. When you look at when you compare it to other layers of the drug channel, it's not to say there's not problems and in, in dysfunction on the drug maker side, but from a from a diversity of players perspective, it, it is is quite robust. On the wholesaler side, there are many different players. However, uh, there are three large wholesalers that make up just about over 90% of all sales. And that's McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, and Cardinal Health. On the pharmacy side, we're seeing increased consolidation. We're seeing less and less independent pharmacies. We're seeing more of the regional chains get swallowed up by CVS and Walgreens. Even Rite Aid, who was one of the largest players you know, maybe 10 years ago, has been swallowed up into uh, some of the larger chains as well. You have the emergence of players like Walmart Pharmacy, Kroger Pharmacy, uh, and the grocers. It's diverse, but the market concentration, uh, at least in the pharmacy space, is heavily dependent upon where you're looking, uh, because we expect access to community pharmacies at you know from a physical standpoint. You know what we might look at 
as horizontal consolidate or horizontal integration at the, at the at, let's say a national level, we might say, well, you know, the, it, it's competitive enough. Well, the second you go into your community, if there's only one pharmacy, that's a monopoly as far as you're, you're concerned. So diversity in the marketplace is a little bit more nuanced in the pharmacy space. When you get to the PBM sector, those that are actually covering the drugs, facilitating the process of, of covering the claim, we're looking at extreme levels of concentration, just like we see in the wholesaler marketplace as well, where three PBMs make up about over 85% of all claims transactions. Um, and on top of that, a lot of the quote competitor PBMs are white labeling or renting certain services from the larger PBMs, providing a distorted perception of what competition actually looks like. So when we say P three PBMs make up 85% of that marketplace, the truth is, if you're looking at it a little bit more nuanced and looking at those quote competitors, that concentration is even more significant. And then on the insurer side, we also see a growing amount of horizontal consolidation. So back to what you're saying, concentration of the markets is occurring at every layer of the, of the supply chain. Where vertical integration creeps in is when we look at what we used to call PBMs or used to just conceptualize as only PBMs. Today, they are vertically integrated. So let's say, let's use CVS uh, Health as an example. CVS Health now owns Aetna, which is one of the largest insurance companies in, in the country. Uh, They're all one and the same. Caremark as the PBM is one of the largest PBMs in the marketplace. And then again, you have CVS pharmacies, which are community-based pharmacies, mail-order pharmacies, and specialty pharmacies. We also see CVS in joint sourcing arrangements with companies like Cardinal Health, where they're involved in essentially the wholesale business as well. Uh, the only thing that CVS isn't technically, well, maybe I should stop before I get too far ahead, but they're not, they're not considered to be a manufacturer, except the fact that CVS white labels some of its own over-the-counter products that they sell on the front end of their pharmacy. So if you want to so, be technical, me, you can me, argue that CVS now owns every layer of the drug channel. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, just to, for listeners, white labeling means what? Uh, a, bra a, a branded a, a product with a name that you wouldn't necessarily recognize in terms of, of, of the brand? Is that what that means? That's exactly right. It's, it is, a, you know, some company is making something and they sell mm. it to somebody else and they don't represent it as the source material. They represent it as whoever purchased that product or service, they slap their own logo on top of it. Okay. So again, uh, for those tuning in, we're listening and speaking with Antonio Chacha, who uh, is the founder and, and uh, president of Three Axis Advisors and 46 Brooklyn Research out of Ohio. Um, Three Axis is a consulting firm that tries to uh, provide uh, consulting services about the complex system that we're talking about, which is drug pricing and 46 Brooklyn Research um, does some of the same thing, but they're more um, of their existence is primarily to provide information and understanding um, to anyone, including individual consumers, to try to understand this. And as clear as you've been, Antonio, um, I'm just imagining if, and maybe you have this on one of the so-called dashboards, if, if you were trying to explain this to, uh, let's say, high schoolers, and you were trying to put up some kind of a, a graphic description to show, you know, where, how the drugs move and who's, 
who the players are and who owns who it would, I think it would look like um, a bowl of spaghetti turned upside down um, because it, it's, it's just, it sounds like it's just that complex. Is that a fair statement to make? Without, without question. Um, you know, I, I have a bias against complexity because in my line of work, you know, the reason that people hire us is to primarily help them unravel uh, complexity and have a better understanding of what real prices are, what fair prices are. And um, with mystery comes margin. And there's obviously, when you look at how large the pharmaceutical industry has gotten from the drug supply chain perspective, you know, there's just, there's a lot of margin <laughs> and it coincides with a lot of mystery. Um, in an ideal world, I would put myself out of business because um, you know, we, there are many companies like ours um, who are experts in drug pricing. Uh, there's arguably firms that know more than us. Uh, but what they do is they rely heavily on the secret sauce remaining secret. And so what we try to do is give away as much as humanly possible uh, because you know we all pay for this system and it's inadequate. Uh, I think that uh, there's a lot more that can be done to elevate the role that pharmacists play in healthcare delivery. And I think a lot of that is insulated and hidden and constrained by the fact that we, we, we throw the pharmacist within a transaction that's gotten exceedingly complex. And we look at the pharmacist as a healthcare provider merely as a, as a distributor of the drug. And so if we don't unlock, uh, I think a lot of the fat that lives in the distribution of the drug will never actually look at, at, um, at pharmacy in a way that they could actually register a greater healthcare or a greater value proposition to the healthcare um, sector. So as a, again, a former healthcare attorney um, for 30 years, I concentrated my practice on trying to focus on um, other parts of the healthcare delivery system, the hospitals, the physicians, the clinics, the laboratories. In today's world, um, prescription drugs are playing an ever-increasing part in the care, treatment, whatever, for healthcare. In other words, people still go to the hospital. They still go to visit their general practitioner. They still go to specialists for certain uh, traumatic issues, but also for chronic care. But in increasingly, drugs play a huge and, and part in terms of people's sense of what they need to do to get healthy, stay healthy, which means there's more, there's more and more money that's being, that's being uh, put out for drugs. And yet, it's easier to understand, it seems to me, how the healthcare system works from the standpoint of the classic providers that I just mentioned than it possibly is with regard to prescription drugs, which is playing this outside uh, oversized role in terms of healthcare. And when, again, going back to the, the PBMs, which is what we're centrally talking about, when you said PBMs were designed originally to adjudicate, what that term means, I think, from the layperson's perspective is you go to your doctor, your doctor says you should be uh, taking this particular drug. 
you have insurance. The, do the doctor doesn't really get involved in whether your insurance will cover your drug. And they simply say, which pharmacy do you, do you go to or whatever? And if it's CVS or Walgreens or ABC, um, someone in the back office of the physician's office sends that uh, script electronically or otherwise, they used to write it on paper electronically, and you show up at the drugstore and pick it up. Um, so the PBM was instrumental in sort of processing, is maybe a better word, the claim, which means, okay, doctor said that the patient needs uh, this particular drug, uh, the insurance will cover this portion of it, or it doesn't cover it at all because of things called formularies. But it was more simple. But now, as you say, the PBM's role has enlarged and not necessarily because it's providing a better service that benefits the individual consumer or patient, but because there's, there's a lot of money, a lot of latitude, and a lot of things that are going on beneath the surface. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, without, without question. Um... You know, it has been made unnecessary complex because that's where arbitrage can occur. And by arbitrage, what do you mean by that? Arbitrage is uh, essentially taking advantage uh, uh, when somebody takes advantage of an asymmetry of information in order to you know mark something up. So you know, if I'm if I'm you know I'm basically hiding the price on one side, hiding the price on another side, and making sure that I'm taking advantage of the gap. So let me um, ask you this question. Um, your company, you're a smart guy. Your company's very capable. It's trying to develop, um, trying to make something that's very, very complex, less complicated in terms of the discussion. Um, and you also provide services to healthcare entities of various sorts. Um, I think one big question that comes up is whenever you see that there's consolidation, when there's referrals, we call them rebates. If we're being nice, we call them kickbacks. If we're not being nice, the government has a role to play or is supposed to have a role to play, which is to say, if those rebates are actually more in the nature of kickbacks, uh, which we can talk about the difference between what those two things mean, the government says we need to stop that. Um, and the government has an important interest to play, particularly with, uh, obviously, with Medicare and Medicaid, because Medicare and Medicaid is shelling out money. Yes, it's taxpayer money initially, but they're shelling out money. And if there are inefficiencies in the system that are you know, either out-and-out -out fraud or just simply loopholes that people are exploiting, you would think the government would want to get involved in a variety of ways. Has government taken an active role? Is gov does government need to do more to try to fix or address the problems? Without question. Um, you know, I think there is, you know, I, I'm somebody who's leery of a heavy hand of government, but, you know, government has um, an unquestionable role in this. As a perfect example, you could argue that some of the problems uh, were, heart, were, were created by government in the first place. Um, years ago, uh, PBMs and insurers, in, in terms of their relationship with drug makers, 
were granted an exemption to the federal anti-kickback statute. And so there are federal laws on the books that, that say that in other marketplaces, kickbacks are expressly prohibited because they are anti-competitive. Um, the drug industry got a special exemption for it. And so what that meant is that large drug companies uh, would go to insurers and PBMs and say, hey, in exchange for you covering our drug and maybe even not covering a competitor's drug, we're gonna give you a ton of money as an enticement for you to make that decision. And so now we as consumers who are relying on insurance companies and PBMs to cover the uh, expensive medications uh, have been at least corrupted from an incentive perspective, uh, not completely because, uh, you know, I'm not saying that they're, that they're picking drugs just, about, just based upon how profitable they are, but they're going to make decisions that are now going to be swayed by financial enticements that are given by drug makers. What makes that even more uh, broken in the drug industry is that recognize that drug makers don't lower their prices in the face of competition at this point. You know, in traditional marketplaces, competition works to lower the prices of said products and services. However, in the drug industry, now that there is an exemption to the anti-kickback statute, what that means is that drug makers can raise prices higher and higher and higher in order to accommodate larger and larger rebates and discounts back to uh, PBMs and insurance companies in exchange for coverage. What that does to us as consumers is that now it creates a price that becomes almost unrealistically unattainable without having insurance and PBMs to cover that product for them. So it's created a captive marketplace for us as consumers because drugs are no longer priced with the intent of a consumer buying them. They're priced with the intent that insurers and PBMs will be buying them and only when they receive huge discounts in exchange for covering it in the first place. So um, I got a couple of questions. First of all, one would assume that if there is a discount to be had, that somehow the benefit of that discount would pass down to the, the consumer. I mean, after the usual administrative costs are paid for, but the discounts, what you're saying is that the discounts are actually money that is available to all the players up the line, essentially, um, to make them even more profitable because that, that because they can. Is, is that what you're describing? You're, you're correct, um, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. You know, most patients pay very little or nothing for their medications, right? Uh, but there are others, let's say Medicaid. Medicaid patients basically pay uh, nothing. Those who have, you know, good, good uh, coverage from their employers, they may not experience any price at point of sale. However, we're seeing a growing share of patients who are in high deductible health plans. And so in those instances, if a PBM, let's say, let's say, let's say you're in a high deductible plan and I'm not, okay? You know, we might have the same PBM. So when I am a patient and I go to, go to the pharmacy counter to get my drugs, I will see a $0 copay or let's say a $10 copay. And in that regard, we would argue that whatever that discounting system that exists, at least I didn't have to pay for it at the pharmacy counter. Now, maybe I'm paying for it in a higher premium, but at least I'm not exposed to an artificially inflated list price at the pharmacy counter. 
you might have the exact same PBM, except you're in a high deductible version of that, uh, of that PBM's uh, benefits offering. Now you're walking in and you're paying the full list price of that medication, even though the PBM might be collecting a huge rebate and discount that makes the net cost for them much lower, but you're getting stuck paying the full tab at the pharmacy counter without any of the benefit of that discount coming through to you. Well, let me stray into an area which hopefully will not cause you to uh, cause even more confusion or complexity here. Um, when you're talking about insurance, you have at least two or three uh, subtopics. You've got the, the deductible portion. So deductible, most people understand that you have to reach a deductible. You have to have expended out of pocket an amount that's called in effect the deductible before you get the first dollar of coverage. And that used to be simpler because the deductible concept was applied sort of across the board. My healthcare services, I have a deductible for if I go to the hospital, I have to shell out X dollars before my insurance company will pay for my overnight stay. You might have a deductible for the physician or the anesthesiologist. But nowadays what I'm seeing is you don't have just one deductible with a lot of plans. You might have a deductible for certain kinds of drugs, but the drugs that cost more that somebody's evidently making a higher profit on based upon what you've been telling us, Antonio. Um, no, you have another deductible. Uh, you, you had a deductible that was only this amount, but now it's higher for certain drugs. So that's another way in which people, the consumer is paying for, the, for, for their drugs. And it's not covered by the insurance, even though they have an insurance plan. Then there's the so-called co-payment, which is okay, Maybe you have a low deductible, but when you go to pick up the drug, 80% of it is covered through your insurance. The other 20% is what you have to pay every time you go to get the drug. Now, some people's plans are better, richer, you know, for better for the consumer. Some of the drugs, there's, there's no co-payment or, and maybe, and, and, and the deductible is low, as you said, but it seems to me that, again, from what I've seen is you have the consumer having to pony up more and more money as, as time goes on and until and unless there's regulation. It's just that it's dispersed. And so in terms of the transparency of it, it's not that obvious. And I think that probably contributes to the problem as to why the situation has continued without a whole lot of yelling and screaming by, by patients who are being priced out of being able to get their drugs, even if they have insurance. I would argue that this, uh, it, that this is no longer insurance. Um, you know, we, these types of phrases, I, 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 like to, I like to compare to, you know, say automobile insurance, okay? With automobile insurance, you know, the idea is, is that, you know, you pay a premium, you pay a premium, you pay a premium. When something goes wrong, that's when they step in. Now, you might still have your own deductible. Okay. You might have to like pay 500 bucks or something like that until, you know, you have to at least cover a portion of it. But the idea between behind auto insurance is that, look, you know, there's going to be a certain deductible threshold, uh, but when something goes wrong, it will kick in. 
What makes drugs a little bit unique is that uh, we expect coverage for everything, even cheap generics. Uh, it would be the equivalent of your auto insurance also covering your oil changes, you know, nicks and dings on your car, et cetera. And so I would argue that, that we have insurance for something that we don't need sometimes. Uh, generic drugs are highly deflationary. There's very little sticker shock, if at all. Um, it's essentially an insurance policy on a deflating, you know, good or service, which, you know, you don't necessarily need. But put that off to the side. Most health insurance deductibles are looking at five, six thousand dollars, you know, that you have to pay. And so that's not insurance. You know, I, I buy insurance to make sure that when I'm when I see a surprise bill that I'm not necessarily ready for, I want my insurance company to insulate me from the risk of that. If my deductible is thousands of dollars, that's not helping me. <laughs> that is not that is not really insurance. So what we have today is managed care. Uh, so a lot of insurance companies or health insurance companies don't even refer to them as insurance companies anymore. They refer themselves as managed care organizations or managed care plans. And it's just, I think it's an important thing for consumers to understand that this benefit that we have isn't the insurance company or the health insurance that your mom and dad had. This is a far more complex coverage and it is not meant to act as insurance. It's, it's, it's meant to just overall your, your uh, overall manage your your overall well-being. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Just recognize that the incentives are different than what many people conceptualize. I take your point, which is that the use of the even the term of insurance probably doesn't make much sense when we're talking about quote healthcare insurance. It made it made sense when you said, you know, insurance. I have I've uh, fire insurance. Um, I'm hopeful hoping I'm not going to have a fire, uh, having a fire, having your house burned down or be damaged by fire is a relatively rare event. So, but it could be a catastrophic event. So you pay for insurance, but cross your fingers and hope that you'd never have to use it. But if you have to use it, then, um, most of the ex uh, expenses is taken care of. But you've already paid in advance, so there's no there's no real surprise. In this business, the pharmacy business, the the the, the one that's now controlled by all these players who are all related and get rebates and all that. That's like, like you said, it's a different story. What you, people just want that they want somebody else to pay for it, but they don't realize in the end they are paying for it. They're paying for it through premiums, they're paying through it through deductibles, they're paying for it through co-payments, and they're paying for it through denials. Let's not forget the fact, right. and again, I've seen this go up. You got, your doctor says, you need to have this particular drug. There are other drugs we could choose from, but I'm choosing this for you because I think this will work better with your body chemistry and your, your, your other medical conditions. And, and, and there's less side effects, blah, blah, blah. So you think, you say, great, thank you very much. You go to the drug store. I don't know if it's fair to call it. You go to the pharmacy and you hand them the prescription or they got it, uh, you know, on, by, by email or encrypted uh, transmission. And they say, um, they make a call or they look at their computer screen and say, your insurance company doesn't cover this. Well, okay, what are you supposed to do? Well, you got to go back to your doctor 
the patient has to go back to the doctor. They have to get on the phone, get answering, you know, get, get boy, leave a voice message, wait 24 to 48 hours. And then they talk to never, they never talk to the doctor because they've already seen the doctor. The doctor's taking care of a new patient every 15 minutes, sometimes every 15 seconds. So you get somebody to, to say, okay, uh, uh, listen to you. I can't get my drug covered. That requires the, the physician's office to intervene to provide some level of information to the insurance company, which transfers it possibly to the PBM in this whole maze. And they will get back to you and decide whether or not they should make a so-called exception. And that's where, again, things are getting really balled up in the process. Um, can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I mean, so back to what I was talking about with the anti-kickback exemption. So drug makers are paying a bunch of money over to PBMs in exchange for covering their drug. That has an inflationary impact on price uh, when that occurs. Why are they doing that? Is because the drug maker is being guaranteed some sort of market share. So if I'm a large PBM and I represent 25, 30% of all patient lives, that drug maker needs me more than I need them. And so that drug maker is willing to cough up big money in order to get access to the mouths and bodies of all those, you know, all those patients that PBM represents. And so um, the, P, the, the, the drug maker won't do that unless they're getting something very material in, in, uh, in return. And so part of the benefit is that they're buying market share by doing, by, by engaging in that kickback scheme. So the PBM will, it has to deliver on that promise of market share. How do they do that? That's by saying one drug will be covered, another one won't. Well, that's by saying one drug will be preferred, the other one will not. And if somebody wants, if a patient and a doctor think that a certain medication is better for you, well, we don't care. We're gonna go off what we think is best for you <laughs> based upon our own incentives as the PBM. And so one of the carrots that a PBM will throw to a drug maker is that, look, we'll prefer your drug. We'll, we'll make sure there's $0 copay. You know, you pay us a lot of money, that's what'll happen. And then your competitor drugs, the, 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 the drug companies that you don't want uh, the patients getting access to, we're happy to slap a prior authorization on that. We're happy to go and engage in the step therapy uh, that basically disincentivizes the physician and patient from getting access to the alternative medication that is not preferred by the PBM. Okay, so let me, we only have five minutes left and I wanna talk to you about or have you talk about what is what do you think is being done? What can be done? But let me focus on one thing just to make it perfectly clear in what you said. You have a physician who spent years going to medical school, spent years in internship and residency, perfecting his or her craft. They decide this is the drug that you need. And they've looked at the, minute, uh, the literature, they've looked at the data, they know why they're prescribing it. That the choice that that physician made for each individual is being taken away, taken away from the physician, taken away from the patient and put in the hands of people whose only interest is making more money. That sounds absolutely horrid to me and scary. So do you feel that that's horrid? And do you feel that at this point in, in, the, next, in the last few minutes of the show, that there's gonna be progress made to address these issues. So I do believe that formularies have their place in the system. You know, let's just say, 
let's say for the sake of argument that there's one drug that's very good and there's another drug that isn't very good. And let's say that 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 the good drug is also even more it's even cheaper. So so if I am a a, a health plan or if I'm a plan sponsor, OK, I'm, I'm your employer. I want a PBM making decisions that that entice people to take the better drug that might be a better value than the less value drug. All right, all of that is is important, but recognize that there is conflicts in that regard. You know, if the PBM is making that decision, what type of skin in the game do they have? What type of incentives do they have to make sure that that's the right one, especially if they're working against the recommendations of a physician? Uh, what makes this even more, uh, I think, horrid, to use your term, is that the prices of the medications, again, are overinflated. And we as consumers aren't expected to get the, uh, to, to pay for them out of our own pocket. So we have gotten to a point where drug prices have become so disconnected from reality that even if we decided to go around our insurance plan and they have done a very legitimate job in covering a certain medication and de designing a formulary with perhaps even our best interests at heart, I, it's not realistic for me to go around it because the prices have become so inflated because of this kickback scheme that is now in place. And so you could argue that the prices have gotten so out of whack that it is ridiculous to assume that a patient could ever purchase it outside of benefits coverage. All right, Antonio um, Chacha, who is again, the founder of Three Axis Advisors and four, uh, 46 Brooklyn Research. We've just, we talked a lot. You've provided a lot of information. I feel like we've only scratched the surface. And so we do need to have you back. But first of all, tell people, uh, people that, that are listening to this show would probably be most interested in going to 46 Brooklyn Research to get information that's understandable about how this works. Where do they go? Yeah, my recommendation would be to go to 46brooklyn.com. Uh, that's where we have all of our public facing uh, uh, data analytics dashboards and research uh, meant for, uh, let's say, it's it's not definitely, it's, I wouldn't characterize it as layperson, but it's more accessible, I think, to the general public than other drug pricing research that you'll find. Okay, well, I can't overemphasize the importance of getting more knowledge and hopefully with more knowledge um, gives people uh, not only access and understanding, but maybe they'll have some impact on their legislators, which we haven't been able to talk about, to get some greater transparency. I want to thank you, Antonio, for being on the show today. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure and very illuminating. I hope thank you, Mark. Back. Great to be with you. Again, I hope, I hope you will come back because uh, there's much more to cover, but thanks again for being on the show. Thank you.